Welcome to another episode of the Non-Victim Nation podcast. In this episode, we're speaking with Jake Azeltine, an engineer, combat veteran, and founder of Spectre Solutions Group. So we were just having a conversation, uh, kind of getting to know Jake a little better and understand exactly uh, what a combat engineer is, even though that is not currently his title. But uh, if you want to kind of give us a little bit of that rundown again, that would be awesome. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. So I actually got out in 2017, um, but yeah, combat engineer. So you, your primary job is being an enabler on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. You're multi-tool, so uh, with, with an emphasis in explosives and um, like battlefield manipulation, I guess you could say. So right. like physical manipulation of the battlefield. So um, a lot of times you'll see combat engineers attached to infantry units. Um, as like a breach asset, so breaching into buildings, breaching through barriers, uh, clearing battlefield obstacles, um, eliminating critical infrastructure, uh, that's a big part of it. So like bridges, like you're trained on like where to hit bridges and like what types of explosives to use for that sort of thing. And then, um, yeah, like urban breaching, like I said, a lot of that, you're blowing up a lot of doors and stuff. And then um, on the other side of that, you are kind of like the... uh, the, the bitch of the military. Like, you're, you're getting tasked out to dig a lot of holes. Yeah. Um, you're preparing a lot of firing positions. You're digging a lot of foxholes. Mm-hmm. Building a lot of sea wire obstacles. You build obstacles also. So we do build things. We don't just destroy everything. Right. But, um, yeah, you train, train across all that. And then when you deploy, you, well, at least in the GWAT, you were looking for IEDs. That was our primary job. Right. Um, if you were going to be in the company setting. So like, a, like if you're in a company of all combat engineers, you're looking for bombs and that's mm-hmm. what you're doing. Um, and that was the case when I deployed to Afghanistan. Um, yeah, we just looked for IEDs and yeah. we um, well, did a lot of things. Uh, and it's actually cool to look back in hindsight at all of the things that I witnessed and all of the things that we did. It seems a lot cooler now than it did while we were doing it. Like, yeah. Um, so yeah, you get there. We weren't even supposed to be there. Um, we got there and they were like, they weren't expecting our unit. So we were, we thought we were going to be operating out of Kandahar and they didn't have vehicles for us. They didn't have anything. And, um, we, uh, so we, we kind of hung out there for like a month and then we got vehicles from a graveyard, uh, on Kandahar. So they're like, okay, well, we're going to go to, you know, this, this graveyard where all these blown up Vicks are at. And that's where we're going to recover our route clearance packages from the grave <laughs> and we're going to like Mantech is the company that handles all those, all the fixing of those vehicles, like the mine right. resistant vehicles. And, um, so we did that. Like, so like we all got to see what, like the result was of mm-hmm. what our job was going to be when we left the gate. Right. So we spent another month waiting for Mantech to build up vehicles for us, like mm-hmm. taking these like husks of vehicles and then making them roadworthy again. And we did that, and we trained on them, and we got familiar with everything. We made mm-hmm. we made them our own. We named them. It was a good time. Nice. Um, and uh, yeah, we left the gate, went to Leatherneck, and um, yeah, looked for IEDs. Great. And then, so while we were doing that, it was like, you know, we'd find IEDs. Uh, most of the time, they found us first, and um, we would. Uh, Sorry, I'm just blanking right now. I don't know why. But, um, yeah, we'd find the IEDs. Most of the time they'd find us first. And we would, if we could, we would recover what we could from them. And it was incredible the information that you could yield from parts of those IEDs. So, like, for instance, uh, pressure plates. Right. Uh, Pressure plates, 
are usually sealed with tape. And tape is a great conduit for collecting like things like fight fingerprints. And before nice. we left Leatherneck, we actually had an opportunity to go into one of these investigation units and like walk through their trailers and see how they find bomb makers. Um, because like you could find all the IDs in the world, but they're still going to go right. up here. So we have to work down the chain and figure out where they're coming from. So mm-hmm. yeah, um, and that room looked exactly like every CSI video you've ever seen. I was seen. just thinking that. Like <laughs> I mean, I'm with, like to the point where like there was a giant map of Helmand Province on the mm-hmm. wall, right? With pins in it and pieces of red and different color string connecting different pins. Nice. Like just like you'd see like some conspiracy theorists like trying to convince you that like you right. know, whatever they're trying to convince you of, but yeah, who really shot JFK? Yeah, yeah, something <laughs> like that. It was really incredible to see that. And then so the our side of that, you know, we would collect that stuff and bring it back to Leatherneck when we go back to refuel, refit. We live in the trucks for like two weeks at a time if we could. Sometimes we got hit too many times and we had to come back and get vehicles yeah. fixed up because like we could afford to lose like one or two. And but like we didn't really have. A ton of injuries surprisingly mm-hmm. um, like I do have buddies that are missing legs and arms and continue to battle with like shrapnel wounds because like sometimes you'll get hit and if you don't have what's called like a spall liner on the inside of the truck it's designed to like catch little shards of metal mm-hmm. um, when you hit metal really really hard and like with a lot of impact it'll actually shatter into like a million little tiny right. little microscopic pieces and it goes everywhere and if your legs are sitting right next to it and a bomb goes off on the other side, it's gonna go right into your leg, and it didn't even have to pierce the armor. It, like The armor becomes the shrapnel. And, um, That's a scary thought. Yeah, so, um, and there's no way to recover all of that out of your leg. So you're fighting the infection the rest of your life. Um, you know, there were guys that, you know, decided at the time that they were gonna keep their legs and have since lost them because, um, because of that, because of reoccurring infections and stuff like wow. that, arms even. Um, but yeah, anyway, like aside from all that, like we would operate out there, we'd do that, we'd recover the IEDs again. And, um, you know, sometimes we would do like our own route, our route overwatch because one of the problems was mm-hmm. uh, backlaying, which, which meant like, you know, vehicles would get out of sight and then the Taliban would just bury bombs back in the road or whoever the Taliban hired to bury the bombs would bury the bombs in the road. Right. And so we would just watch the routes, those hot spots. We had like a bunch of patrol bases we'd hang out at or like ANA patrol bases we'd hang out at, ANA's mm-hmm. uh, Afghan nationals, uh, army, whatever. It's a, okay. um, their own army. And we'd hang out there and watch the routes, and we had our own ISR assets, which, looking back on it, was pretty high speed for just some random Joes out there. And right. so, yeah, we'd throw a plane up and watch the routes. Um, you know, if we did find uh, people burying IEDs, then we would watch where they go. You know, we'd get it up high enough to where it was out of audible range. They couldn't mm-hmm. hear it. They couldn't see it. Because they're real small. Like, Ravens and Pumas, like, I mean, the Puma's got a six-foot wingspan, and the Raven's maybe a three-foot wingspan. It's a real small bird. Wow. And it'll stay up there for, like, like several hours. So you throw it up there, and you just kind of watch. Sometimes you get lucky. You find one. You watch him walk back to his house. Well, now you <laughs> know you house. You, now you know the grid coordinate of where this guy just came right. from. And, but it doesn't stop there. So, like, we, you know, not we as in, like, the group, but, like, people that were, you know, more important than myself would get that information and then – push it up to higher assets. So mm-hmm. you'd have guys that are operating, we call it the flying chainsaw, but I think it was like <laughs> the shadow. Cause that one you always heard. Like it was like, I don't know if it had like a flight ceiling that didn't exceed its audible range. I don't know. Right. But yeah, you always knew when that one was coming overhead. And it was funny cause like when that did happen, like nothing would happen. Like you wouldn't mm-hmm. see contact, you wouldn't see, you wouldn't hear about contact, you wouldn't get IEDs because they were smart. They knew that you were watching right. them. But 
they'd use that among other things that I'm sure we couldn't hear to watch those houses and see who's coming and going from then and that they build the chain out. Right. And that all that information goes back to that room that I mentioned earlier where they're taking all that information and creating this map of people, a bolo list of people who don't even know they're on the bolo list. Right. And so now we can actually watch and like systematically eliminate like IEDs, you know, beyond just finding them and making them go away because mm -hmm. Truthfully, we weren't that great at finding them. I mean, we found a lot, but a lot found us too. Like, right. We got hit a lot. So um, that was just part of the job, and you just kind of get used to it. And most of the time, it wasn't that big. Like, it was like maybe 150 pounds, which sounds like a lot. And to like a normal car, it would turn it into like confetti. But to these <laughs> MRAPs that we were driving around in, um, they'd take the hits. They'd blow off a tire. You'd lose a hood. You'd, you know, you get your can rattled a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and then there were a couple that were a lot bigger than that and sometimes mm -hmm. you'd find like um, russian landmines like you know anti-tank mines but like four of them stacked in a hole together um Damn. you know with like an initiator or something like that just just scary stuff but so it's like that was always in the back of your mind it's like that's what's going to happen or like a dfc which is like they put those up in the trees we found a few of those and um the dfc is a directional fragmentation charge it's essentially, if you can imagine, like a homemade claymore, like a giant shotgun shell. Mm -hmm. So it's like they'll take like coffee cans or like whatever type of big metal jug they can find, pack it full of explosives, or like you tamp the back of it, which means you just fill it with dirt or something hard. Fill it with explosives, and then in front of that you have another tamp, which is like your wad for a shotgun shell, and then the actual like projectiles, and they'll fill it with nails, glass, bolts, shit, like mm -hmm. stuff to infect you, and they'd put it in the trees because the only vulnerable person in those MRAPs was the gunner. Mm -hmm. So the, the yeah. trick was if you could get the truck to detonate it and it's pointed at the turret, like you're probably at least gonna get one person if, right. you know, if his head's sticking up a little too high. And that's why you know, there's like the emphasis on like keeping defilade, like keeping your plates below the, mm -hmm. the, the deck of the truck, the top, top of the truck. So yeah, wow. that, was, that was what we did. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a good life experience. I learned a lot. <laughs> I, um, I definitely <laughs> became a lot more grateful for the things that we have here in our country um mm -hmm. i think you find that really with a lot i mean any veteran who's actually gone well even some that have just spent a lot of time in afghanistan not out of the wire would probably be grateful for it but like mm -hmm. i remember it was funny like there were a couple instances of that while i was there like i remember like just craving like just a, a glass glass with water and ice cubes in it that's what i wanted right like because we had like this shit water that was like uh mineral water and it mm -hmm. was always hot because you, you shoved as much as it because we lived in our trucks like i said for like two weeks at a time so you'd shove as much of it as you could in the the toolboxes on the sides of the truck and that was your water source and sometimes you'd like strap like the cases of it to the top of the truck and right we had to strap all of our mres to the outside of the truck because there's no room in the truck to put it there with all yeah. the joes and all of our cool guy gear and all that stuff mm -hmm. it was, just wasn't room and then we had rpg cages outside of that that kind of held our stuff to the sides of the truck it was like a dual purpose because right rpg cage is designed to um it, it's an rpg cage good. we get rpg shot at us it was designed to detonate it early so that the explosion would dissipate before it really penetrated the armor mm -hmm. um it's like RPGs are shape charges, mm -hmm. and they use something called the Monroe effect, and it's like essentially they create like the explosive in it is like a it's like a lens, and it's a copper cone, and when it detonates, that copper cone gets inverted into like a lightsaber hot jet of metal that will pierce through armor, but it has to be like depending on the lens, just like any lens, like a magnifying glass on an anthill. 
like it has to be a very specific distance from its target okay. um, to be effective. So if you can detonate it early, you're actually, the lens is passing its, I guess you could call it its focal length, like where mm -hmm. it's at zero, where it would pierce, and it's going past that and, and dissipating. And so when it hits the armor, it won't pierce the armor. So that's why we have the RPG cage, but we used it to hold all of our food because <laughs> that's what we had to do. We had like these giant right. MRE things, and yeah. Yes. Yeah. So roughly, how big are those vehicles? Ooh, so they range. We had a bunch of different vehicles. So we had like Huskies, which rode up front. Uh, those are one-man uh, coffins, armored coffins that you drive. And like, so somebody has the unlucky job of sitting in there by himself for 14, 16 hours a day, uh, rolling down a route at three miles an hour with his own thoughts and hoping he doesn't get, he's the first one in the, in the convoy. And right. his job is to find IEDs before anybody else gets hit. Hopefully not the hard way. Right. And the hard, I would say, if it was me, I never actually had to do that job. I got trained on how to drive Huskies and how to work the equipment, but I never actually had to do it. And I can't even imagine um, those guys coming. Like, I've got buddies, like, one of my closest friends in the military was a Husky operator. And, um, you know, he's, his eggs are still kind of scrambled from it. Some things happened that made that harder than it needed to be. But, um, yeah, so you have your Husky up front. That's, you know, it's a, it's a vehicle that looks like a big tractor. One man, like I said, it's, you got, you know, four inches of glass uh, on three sides of you. And it's so small that you have to take the steering wheel out to get in and out from the roof. And wow. then you have like your general vehicles, which is what most people rode in, which are like RG series. So it's like a six wheeled or, or a four wheeled. Um, like you see them all the time on TV, like the police departments have them now. Um, just a heavy vehicle they're probably you know anywhere there's different variants of that so you're probably looking at anywhere from like uh 18 to you know 25 feet long they get pretty mm -hmm. big um and then you have the buffalo which is where everybody wanted to ride mm -hmm. that thing is probably i don't know 18 feet tall 20 feet tall and that's got six wheels it's probably 30 foot long uh that one it sits way higher off the ground. That's our interrogation vehicle. That one's designed to take the biggest hits. Mm -hmm. um, and that's got this thing on the back called a bird bath. And it's like, you feel like you're in a castle watchtower when you're up there because you're like 12 foot off the ground and there's a ladder that literally like you have to drop down to be able to climb up and out of the truck. Mm -hmm. But that one you can fit up to like six people in it depending on the equipment that's inside of it. Uh, we usually had like a crow's system on it. Crow's is a common remote, common remote operated weapon system. So it's like taking like what would be a normal turret reducing the footprint of it and you know so it's like a robot with a machine gun on top of the truck and you sit inside with a joystick and a, and a screen and you can like range targets instantly it's like your hit rate goes way up and right but they never work when you want them to like they always break so it's like you kind of just chill and look at stuff while right. you're riding in there but the air conditioning always worked in the buffalo like it, the seats in the buffalo were bigger and more comfortable and they used they had like air ride in them so you kind of like get a cushy ride and, <laughs> That was primarily what we used. Um, yeah, I mean, so yeah, I guess it was like not that many. It was three vehicle types that kind of right. that up, but yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's interesting with all of the technology and everything that we have that something, and just for people who don't know, an IED is an improvised explosive device, uh, which means somebody somewhere decided they were going to make a bomb and they do it out of just whatever they've got. It isn't like some super sophisticated like military style thing. It's, it's just like the thing you were describing before, that it, like a jug you know, and they literally turn it into a Claymore device, uh, you know. So, like, the bombs and things, 
it's not that they aren't sophisticated, but they're they're just they're homemade things, you know. Um, and it, like I said, it, it's incredible to me that, or not incredible, I guess that's the wrong word to use. It's interesting that like with all the technology that we have, that that system was one of the biggest things that that or one of the biggest detriments to our forces. Yeah. Isn't there like some statistic about like the number of casualties that we had compared? Uh, IEDs versus like open like gunfights and things like that. Like, oh yeah, yeah. Know. Claims way more lives. Even like the, you know, your your SF resources out there, special forces. Even like the we were coalition. You know, so we worked. We we, we recover um, a couple SAS vehicles. We recovered a couple like civilian uh, contractor vehicles. Uh, we were like if we were out there on patrol, we were also QRF for whoever was out there. QRF is like quick reaction for us. So if something's mm-hmm. going down and they need re- need support, then we were there to recover their vehicles or recover them if they didn't have capacity in their vehicles to do so. Mm-hmm. And um, and if they didn't have any other, I mean, we were really close, so we could do that in a lot of cases. But um, to your point, like it was it was always cat and mouse. It was incredible. Um, I have incredible respect for those people. Um, because of what they were able to do with what they had. Um, and it just really goes to show like how dangerous an insurgency can really be. Um, like for just as an example, like it was, it was always like we would come up with a way to circumvent something they were doing. And then like a month later, they would circumvent that thing that we just came up with. And as an mm-hmm. example of that, you know, you have like metal detection. So this happened before I got there. This isn't, I don't, this isn't like classified information, but like metal detection, they knew we could detect metal. Mm-hmm. So they stopped using, like, they used to use, like, nails for, like, the contact points in those pressure plates. So, like, a pressure plate would, be, can like, just, like, a couple pieces of plywood, some rubber, and a couple nails and some wire is all it is. And they would use nails as the contact points. Well, there's a bunch of metal in that. They'd have bigger, thick gauge wires, like, from whatever they could rip out of a car or whatever they could find. Speaker wire was common. Um, and then you'd go to your main charger, initiator, all that stuff. And... Then once they figured out that we were, like, finding the metal, um, they started using carbon rods out of 9-volt batteries. So, like, yeah, because they're, like, highly conductive, and they're pretty big contact points, so you don't need to be, like, any sort of – there's no precision there. And then they would use angel hair copper wire out of alternators from your car. So, like, very thin-gauge copper wire, you're not going to detect that with most metal detectors. It's Mm -hmm. not – it doesn't have a big enough signature to really – alert somebody that it's there so um, and then like everything from like even like your your canine assets like we had canine assets with us um a canine asset that always rode in my truck and it was awesome to have that dog there yeah um it's a little sense of normal normalcy but they had pressure plates made out of sponges for dogs um because they wow. like they a dog wouldn't set off like an anti-personnel so sometimes they'd use like like Gatorade bottles that we'd throw out of the trucks and stuff like that and make pressure plates out. You can make it out of anything. Right. And, but like a dog wouldn't necessarily have enough weight to set that off. So they started using sponges mm-hmm. um, to hit dogs and stuff. So yeah, I mean that stuff is just, and it's out there just waiting. Like it's, that's it, super low effort on their end, you know? And an, as another example of them being able to adapt, it was like um, another convoy of ours had witnessed uh, somebody driving an RC car at our convoy and because we used to jam all their signals, so they couldn't set it off with like a garage door opener or something like that. I don't, I don't think this is classified either, so I'm just gonna say it. But mm-hmm. like they drove this remote control car, yeah, redacted, <laughs> <laughs> top secret. Mm-hmm. Um, they drove this RC car at our convoy, and it died. Okay. A certain distance from the convoy, 
because they knew they they knew, they knew their garage door openers weren't working anymore to set off IEDs. Okay. So this RC car dies, and then this kid comes out with a, like a painted rock and sets it next to the car, grabs the car and goes inside. Well, like that's weird because anywhere that the, ta- the Taliban are thick, like mm-hmm. that stuff is illegal. Like you can't like you don't see that stuff very often. You don't see kites. Kites are like a signaling device for the Taliban. Like you don't okay. see these lavish toys like an RC car. Like an mm-hmm. Afghan kid with an RC car is weird. Yeah. Also, setting a painted rock and grabbing your car is weird. Yeah. You know, setting a painted rock on the ground. It's kind of a red flag. So, but he did that, and now they know how far away they have to put their antenna to where it'll still work. Oh, no right? shit. So now they have their standoff for, oh, yeah, if I just bury, the, bury an antenna in the ground here and then, then run the wire the rest of the way, I can still not be mechanically collect, connected to what I'm setting off and still use a remote control, right? Because if you're using wires to set it off, you're trying to do it like, mm-hmm. like they're operating it. Like, you know, you have like victim operated, then you have like, you know, somebody else operating it. Um, as a trigger man, like you have to mm-hmm. be mechanically collect, connected to that. And this kind of allows them, the, you know, to, to aim. Because like we had things that would like mine rollers that would set stuff off early. So like these big heavy rollers that would roll in front of the truck and you could mm-hmm. push them out like 15, 18 feet. So they would roll over the ID and then it would blow the rollers up and the truck can keep going. Right. You leave the rollers there, we wouldn't really give a shit. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was always cat and mouse. It was always like, you know, hey, you know, we have this new thing. Don't talk about it. It's going to circumvent this or whatever. Right. So, um, yeah, and like that technology is obviously. I mean, this is I, I was deployed in 2010, so I mean, you just imagine how much further it's come since then. So right. I doubt anything I just said was classified in any way, shape, or form. If it was, we'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> huh. So I mean, with all of that, there has to be a pretty high level of like stress while you're doing that, and you're on those movements, like. You mentioned the dog, and, and that gives you sort of like a little sense of normalcy. Like, what do you do to kind of occupy your mind while you're on those missions? Sleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds really bad. You get complacent. I'm if I'm being completely 100% honest. Like, riding in those trucks at three miles an hour and like 90 to 100 degree heat. Um, even in the winter, like we'd have the heat blasting in the trucks, and it's blown up. Like I was always like a turret gunner when we were moving, and. Um, you know, that heat blowing up at me was always, it just puts you out, man. Like, I, I, you'd read. Like, if you had, like, a magazine you'd read, you would, you know, there you knew where you needed to be on your game. Mm-hmm. Because, like, a lot of areas in Helmand Province are, like, flat desert, you know. Right. There's not a lot of places for them to hide or contact you from. So it's like, you'd go through villages and you'd know, like, okay, there's a lot of places somebody could, you know, contact us from here. So you're, I was always interested to go through that stuff anyway, just because mm-hmm. it was, like, something different to see you get to see like what the people are doing sometimes you drop out of the trucks and hang out for a little bit and uh that that was always easy to stay alert but yeah on those longer missions it's you're you're trying to read you're trying to you know snack if you've got snacks with you or whatever just to stay awake but mm-hmm. uh like we had like there was times we had more rip it in the trucks than we did water <laughs> um like for those of you who don't know rippets are like the dollar store uh, energy like monster energy drink and really? we would just drink the shit out of those to, to stay awake like especially at night because we were pretty vulnerable at night we would just um uh like rest right on the route so we would be like yeah we're gonna call it it's like getting dark outside we weren't allowed to run missions at night for a long time and um so what we would do is we would just you know have the huskies clear a big area we'd put the tr- trucks in a big circle 
we always sleep just outside of the trucks, like on cots and open air. And uh, we'd have guys on the gun at night and we'd just rotate shifts through. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was stressful for sure. I mean, your senior buddies get blown up like every time you freaking you leave the, the gate. And so you're always like asking yourself like, okay, when, when is it my turn to get hit? And yeah. how bad is it going to be? Cause then you've got guys who are getting hit and it's busting the V hole out of the truck. And you know, there's dudes without legs and there's, um, you know, like major issues. And, but most of the time it's not. So it's like, you really never know. It's always going to just right. scare the shit out of you. Like I remember like one of the standard practices of the Taliban, um, was, like secondaries and tertiaries. So like they, what they would try to do is make it so like one truck gets hit with like a minor charge and then you have a main charge hidden somewhere. So like what's going to happen is, or more, like more tinier, you know, IEDs to get people like dismounts because like what's going to happen, they know what's going to happen when you get hit. When you get hit, you're going to go through like a recovery procedure and they watch you on how, what that procedure is every single time it happens. So they know like, okay, well, truck's going to get hit, but they're not going to leave it here. They never leave it here. So they got to bring a recovery asset up. We always had like a low void trucker, like a wrecker with us. That's how often we got hit. We literally had a freaking wrecker with us every time (laughs) and or a recovery asset. And anyway, so yeah, we would, you would bring the wrecker up. So they know that's going to happen. So maybe they can disable the wrecker. Now, how are you going to get out of here? Cause now we can contact you with small arms fire if you're stuck. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that's what they would try to do. And so like, I remember the first IED I saw, was um, kind of down by Sangin. A lot of people know where Sangin's at. It was like a super hot spot in 2010. And we were going to a place called Fob Hansen, which actually ended up coming up in the freaking news. The Taliban had taken that back. It was one of the first ones the Taliban had taken back over. Really? It, as they were kind of starting to close in. And it was weird because like I knew that like the back of my hand. It was like tiny little patrol base. I mean, you could have thrown a football across it. <laughs> but um, anyway, we're on our way down there and we're on like this this, um, we call them wadis, like it's like a canal here in Arizona. Mm-hmm. It's like water. So it was like probably like a 40 foot drop down to water. And then it was like poppy sealed on our right hand side with like a pretty good drop off there. But like there was like a big berm. So we had to ride like right on the edge of this like dirt cliff. So it wasn't mm-hmm. real stable ground anyway. And our vehicles are probably 20 tons, maybe more, yeah. super heavy. And so uh, the buffalo is riding in front of me and buffalo gets hit. And it was like, didn't even look real because you train for this stuff all the time. But when it really freaking happens in front of your face, like this truck, we were like, I mean, I must have been like 50, 60 yards from this thing and in open air because I was a gunner. And I'm like looking in this field and like the area didn't feel good anyway because people were like disappeared. And that was weird for the Mm -hmm. time of day and where we were at. And yeah, Buffalo goes up. And uh, it just blew off the rear axle, so it was still mobile. It was able to drive and continue to get, like, out of the way. Well, since the Buffaloes, it was done at that point. Not done, but, I mean, like, they weren't going to use it. Um, I think it messed up the – we have a – there's a big recovery arm on it or a interrogation arm. So it's like a, if you can imagine, like, an excavator, like a skeletonized version of that with a claw on the end of it. And the whole purpose of that was if, like, the husky finds something first mm-hmm. – it would rotate that arm around and it could dig, you know, the IED out and then grab like the pressure plate, which is what we tried to do a lot of times, but mm-hmm. most of the time, cause they're kind of hard to control. Most of the time it would extend out and it was kind of like wonky when you got always extended <laughs> out, it was really springy mm-hmm. and you'd see the operator go to like make a downward move to like dig into the ground. Well, like 
the diggers hit the pressure plate and then the arm just <laughs> yeah. disappears. Right. And that's what that truck is designed to do. Well, the truck I was in had a, called a Fozzy arm and it's like a dinky version of that. You can't get as far away. It was right. like uh, it was something new they were trying out they had on our truck. And so they weren't going to interrogate it with the Buffalo because like, we all backed off. So we all put it in reverse. The Buffalo continued to go because mm-hmm. we didn't know if there was like secondaries or tertiaries right there. And uh, my truck got tasked with interrogation of, like, the area because, like, the, they got a husky. They squeezed a husky around somehow. I'm, like, trying to remember this because this was, like, freaking 13 years ago at this point. Um, got a husky around. Husky had a fine, and they're like, yeah, we're going to go up and interrogate it. Or he thought he had a fine. And uh, we went up there, and I remember being, like, scared shitless because I just watched what happened to the buffalo. And, I like, in my mind, I'm like, there's going to be another one because it wasn't that big. But, I mean, right. like, it sent pieces into the turret. Like, there was dirt falling in everywhere. Like, it was mm-hmm. like it was a decent – that was probably, like, if I had to guess, looking back, this is 13 years later, but I think it was probably, three, like, uh, 150 to 200 pounds of explosives, which is right. a significant bang, I mean, regardless. Yeah. And – so I like literally I was like, hey, I'm gonna lock the gun up and drop out of the turret because like I had all these horror stories before we went out of like, you know, RGs rolling over and turrets coming off and slicing the gunner in half, and I was like, yeah. I don't want to be that statistic. <laughs> so like I'm like, hey, I'm gonna get out and you know out of the turret, I'm gonna drop down and sit down in the in the truck while we interrogate. And they're like, yeah, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Like I just remember being scared as fuck. But after a while, you start to just get you right. know, complacent. Mm-hmm. It just naturally happens. Um, so when you originally joined the military, how much about that or how much of that information or what did you know about the job before you actually got it? Oh, man, they suck you in with this video. So, like, I went in and I was like, I had a good friend of mine in high school who went in. He, was, he graduated a year before I did, and he went in as a combat engineer. So it was like I heard all his cool guy stories of blowing stuff up in Iraq and mm-hmm. – I was like, I already know what I want to do. So I go in there, and I'm like, I want to be a combat engineer. And they're like, perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Just what we wanted. (laughs) And they showed me this cool video of, like, the sappers blowing stuff up and, like, special forces and all this stuff that, like, you're going to go do all this stuff. And you get to do a lot of it in basic. It's, like, a ton of fun. Like, you you do get to go blow stuff up. It's real. Like, you go to your unit. You're blowing shit up all the time. You're doing shoot houses all the time. Like, and we had a really motivated leader, like we had a, we had very motivated leadership, in both the companies I was in because I like, we all like graduated basic training and we you know they don't really I mean like when you get to basic they start to tell you stuff because like that's where it really started to become real for me was you know we got like halfway through basic and the uh, group for my basic training company I think it was Delta Thirty First for those of you listening who might know. Um, that group who graduated before us out of Delta 31st um, there was already a KIA and it was somebody that one of the drill sergeants knew and so so we had this female drill sergeant because it's co-ed through the basic portion of being a combat engineer because there's other types of engineers out there you have heavy equipment operators you have bridge builders you have divers Mm -hmm. uh, guys who like do demolition underwater stuff like that um and then like just general combat engineers. And so you're all doing it together. And so you have female drill sergeants. And I remember it was drill sergeant um, Vasquez, I think was her name. Can't remember. But I remember her just going off on everybody because she had like some connection to this person. And was like, you know, people who were like half-assing it or weren't getting stuff done or were sucking at the range, like she would just come down. And I was like, damn, like, 
they were here like freaking, you know, not even a year ago, and this guy is already dead. And, right. you know, then you get to a unit like we were in a startup unit when we got there. So, like, yeah, we, we graduated basic, and a bunch of us found out we were all going to Hawaii together. Like, more than half the company were like, fuck yeah, we're going to Hawaii. <laughs> nice. And we're high five and everything, and we go, and we're standing up a company. Um, and it was kind of a gaggle because it was like we just had trailers. Like, it wasn't, I mean, most places are probably like that, I would assume, maybe. Um, but it was kind of a gaggle. And then uh, 95th came back. And um, they, you know, had a bunch of stuff go on with them. And, and naturally, when you get back, when a unit gets back, they have to, like, dissipate a bunch of people, right? Because a bunch of people gained rank when they were overseas. Like, you, you like, the fraternization thing's a little different overseas. Like, you're more, like, on the same level in a lot of cases. You're mm-hmm. able to talk different, differently than you are when you are in garrison, so right. like it's not so structured it's very much like hey we're all in this together like mm-hmm. let's freaking if you've got a better idea on how to handle something let's talk about it mm-hmm. and they came back they dissipated and they needed a bunch of people and i was part of the group that went from 34th to the 95th and um we uh yeah we, we filled in the blanks there and it was like the the welcoming we got there was much different because these guys just got back from iraq and right. um you know it was a uh, interesting experience but a lot of them like just wanted to teach us what they learned like what what worked and what didn't and then you had a bunch of people who just got really drunk and stupid a lot of what tore the 34 the 31st 34th mm-hmm. i can't remember anyway um i've had my bell rung a few times <laughs> but right um yeah so a lot of what tore that apart was like just dumb stuff in the military drugs mm-hmm. and stuff like that then they, they were already tearing people apart and then they split everything up and went with the 95th. And then we got where we were deploying to Afghanistan. It was like a year after these guys had gotten back. Like these units under the um, 25th ID, uh, well, they're under 130th Engineer Brigade. So they're kind of like they fall within 25th, but like not really. Mm-hmm. Um, they, uh, they're rapid deployment. So it's like you're every other year you're going. And at the time, the deployments were a year. Like we all was in Afghanistan for 13 months. So we could, there was like a bump in pay you get if you're there for like an extra month. So my commander made sure that we all got that, which was super right. cool. Because like at the last month, you're not really doing anything anyway. We like way, we demoed. We weren't really doing a lot. We were packing a lot of connexes. We were, you know, turning the trucks over, doing like left seat, right seat with the unit that was going to replace us, which actually ended up being the same Michigan National Guard unit that I ended up going into when I moved back to Michigan after that deployment, which really? was really weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like the guys that like I was cross training while I was active duty, having spent a year in Afghanistan, like I reunited with when I went back to Michigan, mm-hmm. um, which was kind of funny because I'm like, dude, I remember you. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. Small world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so if you carry that sort of experience forward into your like kind of everyday life, I have to imagine that that gives you a slightly different perspective over the things that you value, the things that you appreciate versus just kind of, and it's not to say that that average people or that are civilians that have never been in the military can't appreciate things, but I don't think that they have the proper appreciation purely because they just haven't had that same level of stress or, uh, knowing that today isn't just an average day today shit could go seriously wrong yeah you know what i mean yeah, yeah. i just don't have the, the the full perspective right 
Yeah, my wife and I, it's funny enough, we were talking about this last night. Um, Got a few buddies that are struggling, you know, uh, getting out and trying to figure out, like, how to make sense of what you see while you're there. If, like, and I'm talking, I'm not talking about, like, everybody in the military. I'm talking about people who, like, and and this is specifically military, by the way. Like, this, I don't want to exclude people who have experienced trauma outside of the military because trauma is always relevant. um, And it's important. It's extremely important for people to address that stuff. But if we're talking specifically about the military, um, you're seeing that stuff on a lot more consistent basis and you're training to go see that stuff, but nothing can possibly prepare you for what you're about to see if you find yourself in those situations. And the likelihood of you finding yourself in those situations is a lot higher because you're volunteering to go do those things. Mm -hmm. And... I mean, what you're what you're witnessing is literal hell. Like you are, you are, and then I'm, that's not like it's hard to even put that into perspective for a lot of people. Like literal hell. I mean, like people blown to pieces, mm-hmm. um, people missing arms and legs. Like um, the worst parts of humanity. People trying to kill other people. Like that's you see it in action movies all the time. You hear about people talking about it, but it's like we're so removed from that here mm-hmm. that. A lot of people don't understand, like, when shit, and sometimes it's not, it's like it just, freak shit just happens, like, mm-hmm. you know, and um, you have to live with it for the rest of your life. You witnessed that horror, um, and you have to figure out how to make sense of it and live with that for the rest of your life, and that's mm-hmm. really hard for a lot of people, even just, like, getting out and having, like, the structure, um, because stressors in the civilian world are way more than they are when you're deployed which sounds ass backwards but it's not because while you're there you have a job to do some days it's going to be really really most days it's going to be super boring and good most days Mm -hmm. um but then you're going to have periods of time that are absolute horror i had a squad leader that was like yeah you know deployments are extremely long periods of boredom separated by short periods of horror and that's exactly what it was Mm -hmm. and um you know you see your buddies getting hit blown up and you're like dude it's fucking my buddy is still alive. Like I, I just saw like the whole front end of that truck get ripped off. Like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then you hear comms come up and like everyone's talking and you're like, Oh my God. Like, but that's like all the time you're seeing that. And then you get home or then you don't have like a ton of food, right? You're, you're living off of MREs or shit water and whatever else. Like I remember one time I was on uh, one of those night shifts pulling guard. Mm-hmm. I was like, I just need something different than this Haji mineral, mineral water or whatever <laughs> it, well, it was. And so I like, I'm like, we would sometimes there'd be stuff that was left over from like the last few missions or whatever. And I start digging through like toolboxes and I'm like looking with my flashlight and, uh, there in the very back of this toolbox was this little can of V8 and I hated V8. Like, I, grew up, I never liked it. And I was like, it's something different. And for some reason in that moment, it was like, oh, I'm going to take whatever I can find. Yeah. It's different. And I grabbed it and I drank it. And it was like the lights of the Lord were shining down on me. <laughs> and for some reason, it was like the only cold thing in the whole truck. Like it yeah. felt cold at least. And I was like, wow. Like it was like the most amazing experience of my life. Right. And I'll never forget it. And it was a fucking can of V8 juice that yeah. had been probably sitting in there for God knows how long getting rattled around. The paint was missing on it because it was the sand was getting rattled in the truck and whatever. But yeah, you come back home and you really do like your your outlook on an appreciation for things is a lot different. That's why you see guys that are coming back. Like you don't see a lot of veterans that are coming back and they're 
against the Second Amendment or the First Amendment and like telling people how they should think or telling people they need to believe what they believe because they understand what it could be like if we didn't have those things. Right. And a lot of people are so far removed from it that they don't even understand the necessity for what we have and what we have in place right now. They just mm-hmm. want to change it. They're like they're everything right now, we're in the age of micro stressors. Like micro stressors are the biggest thing, right? Like it's right. You know, oh, you did, you you misgendered me or whatever. Like, okay, like you can, like I don't care. Like either way, yeah. you can be whatever you want. That's the best thing about this damn country is you can be whatever you want. Right. But you don't get to tell other people how they should be. Right. If they are not hurting you. In words like that, like if somebody misgendered me as a female, like I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Like what? Like who cares? You know. And I, I'm not like I don't want to like bash those people because I I think. There's a certain amount of bravery that's involved with putting yourself out there and doing those things. So I get it, but I also don't. And I don't have to because right. this is America, right? Yeah. And like there's – you have, and it's not just – I'm not just singling those people out. Like a lot of – most people in this country now, I would say that the, the – maybe not most people. I would say the loudest majority of people mm-hmm. in this country are so hyper-focused on who people are having sex with what their sexual orientation is, what do they identify themselves as, all of this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And none of that is conducive to success in life. Right. Like none of those, those people are so focused on trying to figure out who or what they are. They're not focused on trying to actually make a difference in their communities. And I think that's my disconnect with a lot of it. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying all of them because I've seen like some weird people doing some actually pretty incredible things about like, pollution and like actually forming, you know, uh, like or funding uh, companies that clean up the ocean and things like that, which are important. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's very few and far between, you know, that loud minority, um, you know, really focuses in on all of the things that are just so irrelevant to Mm -hmm. all of the horrible things that could be going on or are going on in a lot of communities in America and like the traumas that people are living through and they're, they don't, a lot of times know how to work through it. Like going back to your initial talk about stressors and my wife and I talking about it, it was like, how do you, like going back to veterans, like how do you even like talk to those people about what they went through and like how to get better, how to get through it? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, me and another one of my really close friends were talking about it last night as well as a continuation to that conversation. And it was just like, you know, you go through those, and this actually probably applies to most people who have experienced trauma in any way, shape, or form and went to a doctor. They just want to slap an RX on it and call it good. And they don't want to talk about actually working through the problems. And in America, that's with a lot of cases, if you go to the doctor for anything, they're going to give you a pill for it. Right. And, you know, they're not going to talk about, you know, any alternatives or what that could do to the long term of your health. Um, but, you know, how do you, how do you, give someone purpose again when they get out through all that. Like that's a big thing I see like uh, with other buddies of mine who have struggled and continue to struggle is uh, they don't, they don't have that purpose. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's a huge part of like redirecting all that energy. Like they, they get out, you don't have a place to motivate you or direct your energy. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I'm still searching for it myself, but I would love to, find a way to be more helpful to those people because it's like what do you say mm-hmm. you know yeah um but i know like for me it was you know finding purpose 
and and getting help and being consistent with myself about getting help because like I was prescribed you know a bunch of pills, mm-hmm. but I think at a certain point I had to ask myself like it does this is this does this actually suit me, and where I was at because like uh, you know I was married before uh, my current wife, and um, you know it didn't go well it was really toxic and mm-hmm. I was really toxic and so was she and um, getting back from Afghanistan trying to unwind everything that you know. And not not only are you re- unwinding all the stuff that you had witnessed or done or whatever it might be, you also have to figure out how to operate in the civilian world. And, and the constraints and standards are completely different from that of what you were used to. Now you don't even have a support system. You're just kind of right. out there. You know, you have to find your support system. And a lot of people, that's your family. And my family did support me, but I felt like in a lot of ways, I really couldn't talk to my family a lot about, you know, what I was stressed out about because they didn't understand right like they didn't witness those things they didn't have to they didn't they didn't do those things um and you know and and they were still super helpful i mean i wouldn't be where i am today without my family um and my friends uh, my friends are like i you know was horrible with money when i was younger and i got out of the military i had no idea like i was never really raised on how to handle finances but you know i say all that to say that like you get out and you're trying to figure all that out and you're still trying to unwind yourself, and it's a long process, and no one really tells you how to deal with it. Like you, when you get back from deployment, they set you down with a counselor, and they talk to you about like, you know, you know what's bothering you, or do you have this, mm-hmm. these, these symptoms, or whatever. And like, there was like there was a lot of rumors like when I was going through that process of like, well, don't claim PTSD because if you do, then you're not going to be able to be a firearms owner when you get out, or you won't have, be able to right. conceal carry when you get out, and you're basically going to start to eliminate some of your rights, and they're going to be watching you. And I'm like, okay, well, then I'm not going to claim that. Yeah. And so I didn't, and you know, I dealt with it myself, and uh, that may or may not have been a great decision. I think I somehow my community, like my friends, my family, the people that I've met since then have really helped give me that purpose again, but it takes a long time. And I think at the end of the day, you have to do it yourself. But, you know, it's, uh, you gotta have help though. I mean, you have to do it yourself, but like you have to, you have to build your community yourself to get the help that you need. Mm -hmm. Like you have to ask yourself whether it suits you or not. So like, you know, when they prescribed me a bunch of SSRIs and stuff to uh, combat, you know, dreams or like, you know, one of the things that were ha- would happen with me is like just like my stressors. Like I like I would see something, or like a loud bang would go off, and like I'd be at a hundred. You know, mm-hmm. and it was like I couldn't stop that, and it was like driving me crazy. And like my, like my ex wife was like super toxic in that. You know, she would try to do this thing. We'd have an argument. I'd go sleep on the couch, and she'd be upstairs like pounding her feet on the ground like a child. Yeah. You know, and I don't regret that marriage, by the way. Like I it, I learned a lot through it. Like. <laughs> And I think she's a better person coming out the other side of it as well as I am. But I was still a man child at that point. I didn't know what I wanted in life. And I was still trying to unravel my brains and figure out my purpose. Right. And those were two big things that needed to happen for me to get where I am now um, to kind of clear clear the minefield, you know, mm-hmm. so I could get through it and out the other side. And that's, you know, been a long process. But a lot of it, again, is, you know, you have to choose you have to choose like things that are going to be conducive to your growth. And it's really hard to learn what those things are going to be. For me, I found a lot of it through faith. Um, you know, I started going back to church a lot when I met uh, my wife and uh, my wife now. And that really helped me kind of start digging into myself. And then um, because I didn't claim anything, I didn't, I didn't, I just stayed away from the VA because I didn't want to uh, have any repercussion for reaching out for help because that's what I thought was going to happen. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I found a private counselor through the uh, employee assistance program from the place I was working at the time. And I, that was the best decision I ever made. And it was a frustrating thing because nobody tells you that, excuse me, when you're going through that process, you're not going to find the right person the first time. In almost any case, you're going to have to go through multiple counselors or psychologists or whatever it is mm-hmm. that you're going to see. And um, kind of dig that out and, and see if they're speaking a language that resonates with you and that delivers tools that you can use to get yourself into a better situation. Because, like, I had one guy sat me down and he told me to chew gum on it, which basically was his way of saying, don't worry about it. And I was right. like, I need to leave. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I probably I shouldn't be in this room alone with you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, like, stuff like that. Useless. Like, yeah. And maybe for somebody, like, that might be great. I don't know. Yeah. But it wasn't great. You know, it took, like, a, a five tries for me. I found a guy uh, back in Michigan who started talking to me and made me realize that, like, trauma is relevant right. to the people that experience it, which is important. And, you know, people that experience a lot more than me have also come out and come through the other side of it and, and made success out of their experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and use that success to continue to help other people. And, like, I'll use, like, an Andy Stumpfism. I think it was him that was talking about it. But, like, no one really talks about, like, talk about the broken soldier and, you know, uh, uh, post-traumatic stress or whatever. Mm-hmm. And But nobody talks about post-traumatic growth. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like, growing through the other side of that and, like, what that takes. Right. And, like, it goes back to, you know, choosing it what's going to be conducive to you, you know, and, and being real with yourself because it's actually working or is it making it worse? Am I a zombie? Because I had to come, like, I, I knew when I met my wife now, I wanted a family. Like, that that's what I wanted. I wanted to be a dad and I wanted to be a husband. Um, and so I'm like, this isn't working for me. Like, I'm not going to be a good dad if I'm strung out all the time or if I'm a zombie. Right. Um, you know, uh, so I took myself off of them, which was also probably not a great idea to just take stop taking them one day. Uh, and, like, that was a thing in all, all in itself. But, I mean, when I came out the other side of it and I started talking to people about it, the, the psychologist I started talking to that actually really resonated with me had asked me what pills I was on, and I told him I was on SSRIs. And he's like, I want you to put a pin in that. We're going to come back to it later. And when we did, uh, he started talking about, you know, how PTSD is not – like it's it's not like it's not being depressed and mm-hmm. but it does have a lot of uh symptoms like bipolar disorder mm-hmm. like meaning like your body has kind of reconditioned itself to go from like zero to 100 really really fast so like mm-hmm. you could be at a low but your body can go to a high like in an instant like anything could set you off just whatever your stressors might be like you know when you're in afghanistan we'd have like regularly we'd get contact with mortars mm-hmm. and it would be like a onesie twosie thing but then they they just kind of might get lucky sometimes but it's like horrifying because mortars, mortars at least the ones we were getting hit with like well rifle grenades and small mortars don't make a noise when they come out of the air the ground just explodes wow so now it's like nothing is safe like the first time it happened we thought it was outgoing we thought somebody was shooting mortars out of our patrol base because mm-hmm. it was like the size of like half of a football field and we squeezed everything in and we're truck to truck and just playing you know and that happens and he goes zero to 100 and you climb in the trucks and hope to God one doesn't hit the top of the truck. And, uh, you know, he, he, so he, he mentioned that and he was saying how, you know, the SSRIs are designed to, like, keep you level. Um, but at the same time, like, 
what's happening with a lot of those and the chemicals in your brain is it's taking your lows and it's actually crushing them and it's taking your highs and it's making them super duper high. So it's like your pendulum just way out of whack. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, a big part of like misprescribing PTSD is a big part of what we see in the veteran like suicide rates. Um, you know, it's they're on these pills and it's taking a problem that's already really bad and it's putting a Band-Aid on it that's actually making it worse. Mm -hmm. And so um, you're taking like you're taking the essentially you're taking the wrong medication for it. And that's right. kind of what that, that's what I was experiencing. And because like I would come into work and I'd be like way depressed for no reason, like it just something stupid would happen. And I would just be way down in the dumps. So I'd be like way up high or I'd be like way back down again. And I'd see something like. Um, I was on the SSRIs when I saw that Fob Hansen, like there was like literally like this place called Fob Hansen and there's pictures of like Taliban walking around inside of it. It was like, holy shit. And like, I just got like way stressed out about it. And I was like, why? Like what? I'm not even there anymore. And even like mm -hmm. the ter interpreters, like the local nationals there, they would have like anyone who spent time there knew what was going to happen when we pulled out. Like no right. one could be honest with themselves and say that there was any chance of success for the Afghan military. Mm -hmm. We did everything for them. And you know, so like, what's the big deal? You know, it, it was just, it was like a trigger for me. I saw the place. I remember being there and I saw Taliban there and it just freaked me out. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, yeah, just dealing with that. Nobody tells you about that. Um, and so people just take, take the pills, you know, and they don't, they don't work through it and ask themselves like, is this going to suit me like later? What am I trying to do? You know, mm -hmm. how can you find your purpose? when you're strung out and you can't even have a conversation with somebody. Another one, like my same close friend that was a Husky operator, we visited him on my way back down from Indianapolis. And um, I think I told you last time we talked, like he's still getting help now and he's he's fighting like hard to just find the right thing. And, um, but you could barely have a conversation with him. And he knew it, like you could tell he knew it. Like it was frustrating for him because all he could think about was where we were like, you know, seven years before that point in time mm -hmm. um, to talk to me about. Like, he, he didn't know what his purpose was. He was trying to get into the police department, but they wouldn't let him in because of, you know, he didn't, he failed the psych exam. And, um, you know, he got with this company that was doing GPR stuff because he was certified to run the equipment, and they were, like, you know, exhuming bodies from, like, people's basements and doing, like, crime scene investigations and stuff like that, and that was messing with him. So mm -hmm. it was just, like... He didn't have, like, a mentor to help him get through that, you know. Right. And it was really hard to see the result of of that. So, but, yeah, I mean, really it just comes down to making the decision. Like, I'm not going to let this kill me. Because if you give up, like, you're already dead. Like, you, what are you going to do? Like, you, you have to find your purpose in life. But if you don't know how to actively get after that, then, mm -hmm. like, where do you even start? Like, when I got out, when you get out as a combat engineer, like, you don't have any, like, transferable skill sets. I was really fortunate that I grew up in a machine shop and I understood how shops worked. Mm -hmm. But even then, like I came in and I was a shipping and receiving clerk. That was like my first job when I got out of the military. And uh, when I was in high school, I took some CAD classes. I was really lucky for that. Mm -hmm. And I started talking to the engineering manager and I was like, hey, like, how do I do what you guys do? And he's like, well, just put your resume in and we're looking for entry level candidates and, you know, we'll get to you. And it took me like six months. Like every month I was going into HR like, hey, have you looked at my resume yet? And, like finally, I had an interview and I started talking to him. And at the time, like, um, again, another, you know, I, I got lucky. Uh, my grandpa had like a machine shop in, at, his, at his house that I lived really close to. So I was always doing stuff there and I was showing him different machining that I was doing. And like I understood CAD and all that, how to build tools. And 
that's where my career that I work now uh, started was, mm-hmm. was right there. And But that, that was like, I had that almost given to me because of my how I came up. A lot of guys that get in the military don't have that given to them. Right. Um, and that's kind of where a lot of the difficulty lies because there's not a lot of people out there letting them, you know, there's not enough people out there reaching out and, and helping these people through this stuff because I think a big part of what you're seeing people quit over is that lack of purpose and that's mm-hmm. i think one of the most crucial parts it's like and that right. freaks people out when they're getting out too like what am i going to do you know like yeah. i don't have any transferable skill sets and so right. you got to you got to find that so i think that that's one of the failings in the military or not in the military but in the government like how the veterans are treated once they're done with their service i think really really needs to be looked at and I don't know if fixed is the right word, but there definitely needs to be a lot more done to support the people that are coming back that have had to deal with all of these things. Yeah. In a, in a much better manner than chew gum. Yeah. Because that's just <laughs> not the fucking right answer. No. You know what I mean? Not at all. Um, but kind of like on a, I kind of want to make this a little bit more relatable to people. People need to understand that like the stress that you have every day, and it's not that it isn't stress, that it, it's not that it isn't important, but you have to be able to put that in a perspective of understanding that like what you're dealing with is not the same thing as what a combat engineer has to deal with. Every day is not life and death for you. Okay, either the things that you're dealing with, they can be bad, you can have bad relationships, you can have bad jobs, you can have bad experiences, right? But the important part is that you learn to deal with those things. You learn to like move forward and learn and grow something, grow as a person from that, rather than let that defeat you. Because that's what kills people. Uh, the other really important aspect is, just like you said, in the military, you're part of a unit, you're part of like, you have uh, structure, you have support, right? I think that there are a lot of people that don't have that either because they don't have enough family support, they don't have enough of a community or that they belong to, that they need to find those things. That's really important, right? Again, it's not that your your individual stress or your problems aren't important, but you don't just sit back and say, well, I have these problems, I have this issue, or I have whatever. You need to find a way to deal with it. You need to find some solution that works for you. You need to find a community to be a part of that will help support you and allow you to like either grow as a person or at the very least deal with the things that you have to deal with on a regular basis so that they're not killing you, so you're not dropping into deep depression, so that you're not just going nowhere in your life but you know falling into the victim mentality. Yeah, and I, I think you know a lot can be learned from that sort of just that mentality um you know like like even excuse me uh like in the military like the the term is like embracing the suck sometimes Mm -hmm. sometimes it's got to suck for a while to get where you want to go and um you know you got to get uncomfortable to to get ahead in a lot of cases and um like as examples like in my life you know uh it's not always easy to choose your community um you know i have friends like from high school I've been lucky enough to stay friends with like, like like they're like more brothers than they are friends. I've known them longer than I haven't, um, and like I love those guys to death. I still I still hang out with them. They're great. Um, my wife and I moved out here from Michigan, so I don't really have as much contact, and that was uncomfortable. Um, but like we did it out of outreach for success. Like we want we knew we wanted something different, and 
you know, we got uncomfortable and then it was like, you got to find friends all of a sudden, you know, and that's really hard to do when you're an adult an adult. And, uh, you know, you just got to kind of start going to things that interest you and you start meeting people. Like you start getting after stuff, like going to the gym, like, cause that's, you know, if you want to get the most people want to get in, in shape, right? Like you don't hear anybody that's like comfortable being like giant, like some people are, or just not getting after it in general. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone's going to tell you they want to, but like it really comes down to like making a decision like, okay, well, it's going to suck to do it, but like I'm going to get up in the morning and go. Or like I'm really tired after work, but like I'm going to make time and go. And um, like my wife and I just recently uh, had a conversation like this um, because having kids, like it's like you get you reset all those things that were hard before. Now they're like four times as hard. Right. Uh, we've got two kids. I've got a, a one-year-old and a three-year-old. So like super high demand. And I love it. I love being a dad. It's everything I wanted it to be and more. But it is hard. And nobody could possibly prepare you for the amount of time you're not going to have. I say that to say that, okay, so we're in a rut. We're really tired. How do we get out of that rut? And so we sat down and we talked about it. Because I'm, I'm looking at her one day and I'm like, we don't even talk anymore. Like it's always like someone fell and bumped their head. Someone needs food. Someone's tired someone's teething like it's like we're trying to have a conversation and it's always broken and we're like how do we fix this so it's like okay well let's shake it up like we're both lucky enough to work from home so let's every friday we're going to go on date and Mm -hmm. you know we carved out time to do that we're both super busy at work like she's like a lead curriculum developer for a university out here and um i am managing the growth of an automation company in this region um, organically from nothing and it's it's really demanding so like we don't like have time but we made time like mm-hmm. you know what like I can do a little less on Friday and make this a priority make my marriage a priority and so we started doing that well this is like where okay so I get stressed out when I don't get stuff done so I'm making myself uncomfortable to be more successful in my marriage but that success is breeding success because now what's happening mm-hmm. is we're sitting down at our lunch date and we're talking about like, okay, what do we want to do? Like, we're, one, where do we want our life to go? Mm-hmm. Like, let's have that conversation. And then, so we talk about that. We're like, okay, well, how are we going to get there in the amount of time that we want to get there? Mm-hmm. So we're like, okay, well, we got to start waking up earlier. Or we got to start prepping meals. Like, even just getting, like, all the groceries for those meals allocated for the week. So when we go grocery shopping, instead of it just being, hey, we're going to buy the same thing every single week and make the same stuff. And every single night, we're going to ask each other, hey, what's for dinner? And we got to figure that out. And that's an hour right. and a half process of figuring it out and cooking it, thawing shit out. Well, now we have a plan. We know what we're going to eat. So in the beginning of the day, we can say, hey, which one of those things are we going to cook tonight? Cool. We'll take it out. Boom. It's in the freaking, you know, thawing out. And, you know, so we start talking about, like, tool sets that we can start developing to get us where we want to go. And, like, mm-hmm. one of the things was, like, I knew I wanted to start a business. So, like, how are we going to do that? Like, I, I already have a really demanding job. Like, how could I possibly find more gas in the tank? And she's got a job that's also very demanding, but it's very routine. So she has the advantage of being able to kind of, like, plan out when she's going to do a lot of those things. Mm-hmm and jump in when I can't in some instances. Like if I'm gonna take on more work and I have to work at night, like how are we gonna make that work? Like, well, I gotta find more gas in the tank. So like I will get off of work, we'll hang out with the kids, we'll do all that whole thing. We already have dinner planned, so that's easy now. Right. And then after dinner, I can go back to work and she can put the kids down. Um, it's just coming up with like a pl- coming up with a plan and on how you're gonna get from A to B. Like you really have to stop and be intentional about setting that up uh, mm-hmm. to do that. Um, 
yeah, I mean, it's, it's it, I don't know. I think it really comes down to intentionality as far as like being successful and choosing to do something hard to get yourself to get yourself out of the rut that you're in. Like you gotta identify where you wanna go and you have to identify how you're gonna get there. And you know, going back to this is with the PTSD, this is with people coming out without purpose, um, people who've been through any trauma and lack purpose in their life. Like you really have to like sit back and think to yourself like what what is it that I want? What am I good at? Like what lights my fire? And you know, how am I gonna get there? Like a lot of people are told like, you know, it's too late in life to do things like it's not at all like my whole thing I tell people is just like you know it's never too late like you see people in their 60s getting after stuff still yeah um you know because they're just motivated to do so you don't have to work that late in your life if you don't want if you've set yourself up to to not do so but I mean there's there's a million chapters to life and you get to choose when you turn the page like that is a crucial thing that nobody told me and it took a really long time to figure that out. And yeah. you know, when you start to like build your community and you start to surround yourself with people that you want to emulate, um, like a lot of my friends now are like almost like I would consider them mentors. Like it's people that I was like magnetically attracted to, you know, that are like, you're, I'm like, you're doing what I wanna do. Like you're an interesting person, um, you're like-minded and you know, um, just learning how you do things is gonna help me become a better person. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, just even and make more enjoyable time together because right. you're you know you're helping each other build this community um, and you know it's it's sad that a lot of people don't have that but it's not something that you can't build for yourself mm-hmm. like you know and like what I was saying before like one of the tools to do that is again getting uncomfortable and going to do things like out here like one of my networking things started uh, you know I started match shooting uh, back in October and I like I was always like, yeah, I carry like it's Arizona. Like I'm a veteran. Like I'm very comfortable with firearms, and right. I absolutely support that. And um, you know, I but I felt un, I didn't feel confident with with that. Like you hear about like these horror stories of you know people having to contact people from like 60 yards away across a food court, you know, to right. stop something really bad from continuing to happen. Like really good people standing up and being competent and making that stuff happen. I'm like, I'm not there. I'm looking at another one of my buddies who's going to one of the local matches Tuesday Night Steel every Tuesday. I'm like, shit, I need to just go do that. Like, I need to do something regular that's going to get me more confident. Mm -hmm. Well, like, that was something that I wanted, that I identified, and I had to get myself uncomfortable to go because I was like, I'm going to go. I'm going to suck. Everyone's going to make fun of me. And that wasn't (laughs) it at all. Like, you go, and everyone's cool as hell. Like, everyone's giving each other shit like that's just part of the the thing and that's actually a blast it's actually tons of fun right you know um and you're learning new things and like everyone's way more than willing to share and help and um you know help you build your skill sets and and make it whatever it is you're trying to make it as long Mm -hmm. as you're being safe and you're there and you're not being a nuisance um yeah i mean it wasn't anything to be intimidated about but i was totally intimidated to go it's like going to the gym for your first time like you're like oh i'm not gonna look stupid on the treadmill or like whatever like right that's not the case at all. No one cares. Like I've never actually been in the gym and looked, like looked over and like, well, look at that guy do this thing. Unless you're like <laughs> humping the ground or something. Like you see those horror videos on yeah. like your TikTok or whatever people are watching. Like, um, yeah, like no one cares. That's right. I mean, no one cares. You just got to go do the thing you want to do and screw what people think. Right. If it's gonna make you a better person and it's gonna get you where you want to go, like honor your journey and go do those things. That you owe it to yourself to do that. Right. So I'm a big proponent of Stoic philosophy, and that's something I'm probably going to get into a whole podcast episode at some point. But uh, 
there's one of the one of the thoughts is that we love ourselves more than other people and yet we worry more about what other people think about us than than we do yeah which is the the most ironic thing if you think about it it doesn't make any sense whatsoever it, no yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't suit you. Yeah, it really <laughs> like doesn't, it doesn't you know? at all. And the fact that we allow those the other people's thoughts or opinions to influence who we are or what we're doing at any given moment is ridiculous. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, and it's like, yeah, I mean, like going back to like getting after what it is you want, or even figuring out your purpose in life. Like in today's day and age, like. If you got to be more intentional about it because everything that's being thrown in your face is probably not suiting you, whatever the algorithm thinks it is that you should be seeing. But, like, if you know that you're interested in something, like, the ability to get on the Internet and research anything mm-hmm. um, is incredible. It's an incredible thing. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I guess I just bring that up to say that, like, there's a lot of opportunity for people to find where they belong so that they can start making those decisions to start getting after it. Like that's right. like, I feel like the biggest thing is like, you know, finding the, finding a place to focus your energy. Um, yeah. I mean, that was, that was probably one of my biggest battles, right. you know, trying to, trying to reintegrate and become a civilian. Like I tried the college thing when I came back, mm-hmm. um, actually when I met my current wife, my wife and, um, it just like the stressors from that were unreal. Like just like anything, I've, unlike anything I've ever experienced. Like I, mm-hmm. I can't, if I had a dollar for every time I wished I could just go deploy and disappear, again, <laughs> I would be a millionaire. And that's right. not even an exaggeration. Like yeah. it's just like the chronic stressors of every single day life as a civilian, like your bills and buying a house and a car and, you know, uh, not, you know, doing it all by yourself. I mean, it's, it's really stressful, you know, and right. that's where kind of building your community really comes in. But, and, and then also surrounding yourself with people that build you up, you know, they like the, the, the saying, the big saying is always, uh, you are the average of the community that you build, right? right. Like you're the average in mm-hmm. there. And that's, I've taken that to heart. Like, I wish I would have heard that earlier in life because mm-hmm. I'm like, holy shit, you mean like I can start hanging out with other entrepreneurs and people who own businesses and right. people who are getting after the things that I really look up to. Like, I'd like, I don't have to watch the TV and wish I was those people. I can like work my way to somewhere on that range where I'm happy and comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have to be, I'm not trying to be, you know, the next super high profile, you know, entrepreneur out there. But like, that's all I want to do is own my own thing and, and run it and, and help people uh, make their lives easier in, right. in ways that are passionate to me, ways that I know a lot about, like yeah. things that like, I know I have skill sets to do. Like, I think everybody probably wants to help, you know, other right. people for the most part if you're a decent human. <laughs> but <laughs> right. like figuring out how to do that, you know, or even just build your family. Like what do you what do you want out of life? Do you want to be a dad? Do you want to be a husband? Do you want to own your right. own business? Do you want to do CAD? Do you want to work with robots? Do you want to, you know, anything, fill in the blank. Like you can right. go out there and you could research it. It's right at your fingertips. You can get after it. You just got to mm-hmm. start making those decisions on like learning and, and finding yourself in communities that are that are gonna set you in that direction and, and as you start to do that you realize like the the success builds success like you start doing one thing like the match shooting well that was cool like i learned a skill set but it's also a huge networking opportunity in the community that i'm trying to influence right you know so like it's like again that success is just continuing to replicate itself and mm-hmm. the same thing with my wife and i deciding to go have 
our, our hot brunch dates. And it's like, okay, so now we're talking about how we're going to make our life more successful. And now we're not just talking about it, but we're actually coming up with a tangible plan on how we're going to accomplish those things. Right. And it just starts with that first grain of sand. And then it all starts to kind of build up. And pretty soon you've got a pile of sand of things that are it's working for you. And then you've got, right. you know, a, a sandbox at some point. And that's where it goes. you got to mm-hmm. identify what you want to do with that, you know. Mm-hmm. So on that note, the, the business that you're starting, like what exactly is that? So um, Spectra Solutions Group, uh, I, I've been doing it for a while as a sole proprietor. Uh, it's... I started in just like design consultation and, and mm-hmm. design and development of products. So like product development for people. Um, people who have excellent ideas and want to mobilize that into an actual product uh, with the end goal of you know connecting them with the proper manufacturing resources to actually make it a real thing. So I can walk through it from start to finish. Like they come to me with like an outstanding invention or idea and they need draw you need drawings for those products. And some way somebody to handle those that development process and then handle going from the development to the manufacturing process and then from then uh, from that point moving into uh, like production like so understanding like what does it mean to scale that up like how do you design for production so that I can get the price point that I want this product to come in the market at and at the margin that I want to make on my product Mm -hmm. Um, so I can help with all of that stuff like I've been like my day job uh, I work for an automation company. Uh, it's a distributor now. I, I've worked for a lot of integrators, people that like robots. Like if you've ever watched How It's Made, how it's made mm-hmm. all those machines, like I've been doing that for probably 11 years now, um, working okay. building machines like that, um, designing machines like that. So, And I started, again, going back another step, like I started in a machine shop when I was a kid, my dad's gun drill shop, uh, drilling really long holes. I was, you know, I grew up around my, <clears throat> my grandpa's, who had a machine shop, so I was always, like, making stuff on mills and lathes. So, like, I understood the machining stuff from a young age, and then I took that and and created a career out of it once I got out of the military. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, started into mechanical design and then into applications, working with customers directly to solve their problems. And a lot of it is, like, labor shortages right now is what I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm so I'm taking all of that combined experience plus with what I did in the military, plus, like, I do a lot of backcountry hunting. Like, I'm always out in the mountains. Any any chance I can get, my wife and I are both out there. And I'm taking all that experience and I'm trying to, you know, inject that into the community as a resource for people to take things that they're passionate about and grow that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, helping people through that development process. And, like, I do, you know, primarily customers that are in like the long range shooting, hunting, military tactical environment. Um, just because my, my knowledge in those areas is a lot more vast than, than a lot of other ones. Right. Um, I, I mean, obviously like in 11 years of experience working in places like, you know, what you see on how it's made, it's, it's been like fill in the blank. Like I've been part of programs for, you know, even like, uh, government vehicle development and, in, in one of my past, uh, careers, um, with the uh, MCV program, like the president, mm-hmm. it's the mobile communications vehicle for the presidential motorcade. Right. So like developing that thing from, you know, uh, yeah. a concept into an actual product that's being used uh, with a bunch of spooky equipment in it <clears throat> so that the motorcade has constant communications and ability to do certain things while they are in convoy. Right. Um, going places. So, um, you know, taking all that packaging mm-hmm. and into what, I, what I'm doing now. 
which really right now is, is a side gig, but I'm, I'm at the point at the point where I want to grow it. So I'm moving into like the LLC stage of things and <clears throat> growing it from there. That's really cool. Uh, I had a question. I kind of lost it. Um, as far as that goes, like, is it something that you're doing a lot of marketing for or is it mostly just kind of word of mouth at this point? Is it? Uh, yeah, right now it's word of mouth. <clears throat> um, it's been pretty low key. It's it's just been again like me talking to people and being like, hey, this is what I do, and they're like, oh well, I got this idea. Could you help me out with it? And I'm like, yeah. And so we talk about it. We sit down. I can consult, and we kind of talk about a plan of like, okay, what's it going to cost to do this? Like, because development's not super cheap. Mm -hmm. um, but like, how can we do this at the lowest price point possible for you to get you what you need to move forward? And I can be in or out of that process at any point. You know, wherever it makes most sense for you and, and your company and developing what you want to do or whatever you want to bring to the market. Mm -hmm. um, like getting people mobilized, and that's mm -hmm. kind of what I want to be. It's just a force multiplier for them. Right. Um, I do have products that I have been working on um, that are I'm working on going through a patent process for before nice. I let those things go. Um, but at this point, it's just, you know, me being a force multiplier for, you know, inventors out there and people in the industry who have an idea that'll change the industry and right. you know a means to move from a to b so yeah and again like not a lot of marketing i'm gonna start up uh instagram here pretty soon i'm kind of just creating all my content right now building it up and then i'll release that and then that'll kind of be my only marketing for right now right. and then once i get there i don't know I'll probably get a website at that point like i've got a growth plan it's just right now i'm kind of just starting out and um i just kind of want to offer my services to whoever Mm -hmm. you know, needs help. Sounds like a plan. Yeah. Um, do you have sort of like a vision of like where you'd like that to end up or like see it become? Uh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think if I, cause I, I, I want, I, eventually it's going to be probably way down the road. I don't, I don't know what the timeline is on this, but what I want it to look like is me offering products, you know, and, and doing collaborations. You see this with a lot of different companies right now, especially like the smaller companies out there. Mm -hmm. They get rapid growth when they start doing a lot of collaboration with other companies. Like I'm gonna have my own things that I'm bringing to the market, um, but at the same time, like I'm never gonna stop offering my resources to other companies who might need development. You know, there's a lot of companies out there like developing MVGs and stuff like that. Like 3D printed MVGs are like the new hotness because it's like, the way additive manufacturing has has um, blown up and, and how far it's come, it's it's you can make mil spec uh, gear that's been three D printed that'll actually stand up to the elements and actually just really? just as good as something that was injection molded. Um, you, you know you can three D print metal now. You can you can do titanium, tool steel. You can do aluminum. Yeah, that whole idea is just the most incredible idea to me. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and it, it makes sense in a lot of cases, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes right. you might want to have it machined because it's going to be you know, more cost-effective or, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of different answers to that problem. It all comes down to the customer. But, yeah, I, I again, like, you know, eventually I want Spectre to be its own entity but also continuing to offer those resources. And, and you know, obviously at that point I'd probably have brick and mortar in. I'd probably have other employees in my own design department, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to go. That's awesome. Yeah. I wish you the best of success for that. Well, I you. definitely will be. I mean, I already follow you on Instagram, just like you personally. Yeah. Uh, but hopefully, I'll continue to like watch that evolution and see how that grows. And uh, I just think that sounds awesome. Like, thanks, man. I'm I'm really big on the, on the idea of like I always talk about this, the building this community, right? Um, 
as being able to help people that you know personally as part of that community, you know, it's wonderful that, that you and I could be friends, we can talk and bullshit and whatever, but to actually like help influence each other's business or to like help bring other audience to that business or, or do something to help it grow to me is, is, is awesome. It's like, I'm, it's one of the kind of like the side things that I hope for with the podcast is that I'm bringing attention to the businesses or the people that, that I've met and, and had on the, on the podcast so far, because up till now, everybody's been here in the Valley, you know? And I think that, uh, there's a lot going on here that people don't realize there's, there's lots of opportunity here and, uh, being able to like draw more attention to that, I think is, is just great. You yeah. Know? Uh, I mean, I appreciate the opportunity uh, to be here discussing it with you. And yeah, that's, that's, that is the goal. The goal is to be a force multiplier for the community. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that, that's, that is my purpose. That is what I have found at the age of 33. And it, it takes a lot of time to do that. And, um, I've been lucky enough to find my, my purpose and that's what it is. It's right. to help people grow their, their businesses and, and help, um, you know, I can do the same thing for myself. That should be the motto for your company. A full force multiplier for the community. <laughs> it's actually engineering the advantage, but okay, there you go. <laughs> awesome. Um, so, with all of that, uh, how? I mean, how do people find you at this point? So, really, I mean, the only thing I have like public is just my Instagram. So mm-hmm. it's like Mister A Actual. Uh, okay. At Instagram or whatever. So if you type that in, you'll find me. Um, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much all I got out there. And I don't have a Facebook anymore cause I just don't like the way it's set up. I think once I start actually like marketing my company on Instagram, I'll probably move that over to Facebook as well. Mm-hmm. But in general, I just don't like the way interactions are facilitated on mm-hmm. those other platforms. I don't have a Twitter or anything like that. So. Great. Gotcha. Is there a website for Spectre? Not yet. No. Okay. Yeah. So again, like I'm going to start with developing the Instagram. I'm like literally in like the infancy stage of this right now because up until now it's just been word of mouth and I've kind of made the decision that like this is what I'm going to do and so this is me moving into that and Mm -hmm. forming the building blocks on that. So I'll start with just the Instagram and then once I start, like it's going to be a garden that I grow, Mm -hmm. right? So I start with an Instagram and I kind of start marketing. I'm already... I already have a lot of opportunities to network with a lot of people who are in the industry who go to these different matches and, and you know, these events and uh, just kind of grow up from there. And, and that garden is going to be, you know, okay, so once I get, you know, uh, enough allocated from whatever, however many jobs I get done, that's going to go into the next patent. Then, I, you know, I can invest that. That's just going to snowball up and then mm-hmm. it can go into website development, things mm-hmm. like that. That's awesome. Very cool. Well, I greatly appreciate you taking the time and come and talk with us. Uh, I know that we had talked uh, somewhat before the episode, and just out of that conversation, I, I, I felt like you would be a very valuable person to have on here, just because you have a lot of uh, you have a lot of experience, but you also have a lot of perspective. Mm-hmm. You've you've managed to turn what could have been very negative things, and, and at some point they probably were, into much more positive things. And that is a valuable lesson I think people need to know. That's something that they need to understand. You can go. So I talk about jiu-jitsu a lot because I think it's the easiest thing to relate to. You know, when you're doing jiu-jitsu, you can find yourself in a really bad position. Somebody's trying to put a choke on you. They're trying to put you in an arm bar or whatever it is, right? And you, you can be in that bad position. But if you keep, the easiest thing is to tap out. So you just tap and you quit and you reset and it's okay, we're going to start over again, right? 
But if you keep training and you keep moving, you learn and understand there is a way to get out of this. You know, you just have to keep trying. You just have to keep moving. You have to keep thinking of like, where can I go next? You know, don't let that bad situation be the end of the of the story. You know, keep moving, keep trying. There's there is a solution there somewhere. And if you can't find it, then you can reset and start over again. You know, and and try to learn from that experience yeah. and move forward. Yeah, I mean, I think like yeah, the the takeaway from that is just don't ever quit. Yeah, just keep going. Get up. Make the hard decision. You get to choose the day. You get to choose when you change the, when you turn the page, and, and then you're on the next chapter. It's it's all on you. Right. And uh, you have the power to do all of those things. And I feel like a lot of people need to hear that like over and over and over again because it's not stressed enough. Right. That we are in charge of our own destiny, and we can make a difference. Um, we just have to get up and, and choose to do that, and that success will breed success, and you'll find yourself in a place that you really want to be um, when you continue to do those things. There you go. So. Final thing for you, dad advice. Dad advice. So in my 33 years, the one thing I keep telling people is that you can live a lot of lifetimes in a lifetime. And it kind of goes back to that chapter thing. Like you think about where you were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, or however, you know, however old you are, like, like how many different things have you done in your life and different chapters have you had and that completely changed, turned your life upside down, right? Like, and done different things. Like, I was, like, in the military, and I did that whole thing. I was in Afghanistan. It feels like another fucking life. And then, you know, I was married prior to my current marriage. That feels like an entirely different life. But I learned a lot of great lessons in that. It was just a really hard chapter. And, you know, that was, you know, I moved into what I do now, and then I'm moving into another chapter where I'm starting, you know, my own business. And um, that's just going to continue to move. And, um yeah, I mean, I guess that's 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 where it is. You can live a lot of lifetimes in your lifetime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that. Awesome. Well, again, thank you for taking the time to be with us here. Uh, I look forward to following everything, and, and uh, definitely want to get out and do more of the shooting things that you're doing. The was the Tuesday night steal. Tuesday night steal. Yeah. Yeah. Do just because I definitely need to work on that myself. I'd, yeah. Uh, it's a great community. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully we'll get to go shooting sometime. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. I appreciate the time, guys. Absolutely. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Also, you can now support the Non-Victim Nation by donating via listener support directly on Spotify. Remember, the story of your life is being written right now. And you are the hero.